A lot of you know that just three months ago, a little bit less, uh, Beck and I had our first child. His name is Declan. Yeah, all right. Woo, I'm with you. Whoever that was, I woo with you. I agree 100%. Now, you, you might know that his name is Declan. We love that name. Wouldn't change it. Think you got it right. I think we hit the nail on the head for our little boy. But you might also remember I mentioned in a sermon once that with a date approaching, we hadn't decided which name we were going to go with. We had like a short list. And so, you know, in the beginnings of the pregnancy, it was probably like eight or nine names, and it got whittled down to five. And I told you in a sermon, we dropped Theo, even though we love the name Theo. So it just wasn't quite right, so we were down to four. In that top four, the final four, was the name Beckett. Hmm. You're thinking, hmm, oh, that's interesting. Now, Beckett was in there. Um, because to me, the name Beckett is really significant. A lot of you know that I studied theater as a younger man. And I remember very vividly one time where I sat down in my theater professor's office. Actually, he sat me down. And he looked me at the eye, looked me in the eye, and he said, now, to understand this, you have to know that um, I was studying acting with this gentleman for three years in a row with basically the same cohort of people. And each um, quarter, we would look at a different era of theater, and we would work on the plays from that era. And by our senior year, we would take more modern uh, authors and playwrights, and we would be working on their things. And so we'd have little units on Shakespeare, George Bernard Shaw. And we came to this one unit, and my theater professor he sits me down, he looks me in the eye, and he says, Brad, I think you might want to take this unit off. I said, Really? Because that's not like a theater professor to say to you. Usually they're like, you need to try new things, right? You need to stretch yourself. You can't just do what's easy for you. And I said, and why would I take this unit off? He said, well, this next playwright, I just don't know if you're going to be able to relate to any of his characters or understand any of his plays. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, um, I know how important your faith is to you. And when you're in acting class, some of the stereotypes are true. Uh, throughout the years, you really kind of get into your own personal story and some of your own personal values and issues, and they come up as you're working on plays. And so my faith uh, had been really out there. It was a part of our class. And so he said, I, you have such a strong faith in God, I don't think you can work on these plays because the author is an atheist. And I just don't think you're going to be able to understand where he's coming from or who any of his characters are. So I think you might just want to, it's okay if you sit this one out or you choose another playwright to work on. So I left and I was like, oh man. You know, I thought, well, maybe he's right. You know, maybe I won't, you know. But then I thought, well, you know, he thinks it's going to bomb anyway, so what have I got to lose? So um, I read the play Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. And as I read it, I thought, huh, this is easy. This, this kind of, these characters, maybe I'm just totally missing it. Maybe my professor is absolutely right, but it just makes, these guys make sense to me. So then, all right, well, I signed up to do a scene with a partner, and we were rehearsing it. Same thing, it just felt like, you know, putting on an old pair of jeans that I forgot were in the closet that fit just perfect, you know? And so, long story short, we end up in class, performing scenes from the play, um, waiting for Ghetto is a comedy. <laughs> you can do it in a way where it's depressing, but it's supposed to be funny. And people are laughing hysterically. And it's, to this day, probably the easiest 
character that I ever played in my whole life. I didn't have to work. Normally, when you get a play, you get a character, I have to work on it. I have to get to a certain place to understand who that person is. No work at all. Easy. Hilarious. It was great. It was funny. My, my professor's mind was blown. And so was mine. And for me, actually, something deeper was going on than being able to play a character in a play and enjoy it, have fun with it. I felt like I was learning something about who I really was. If you know me at all, or you're getting to know me, you know one of my favorite things is to have, things is to have conversations with people about faith, particularly with people of faith who are coming from a different perspective than mine. I really enjoy those. And I also really enjoy having conversations with people who are coming from a Christian background, but just on the edge or just over the edge of pitching it all and saying, I'm done with this. I love those conversations. When I have them, I feel alive. And working on this Samuel Beckett play, God spoke to me through it. He said, Brad, this is part of who you are. The reason you love this play and this playwright and you enjoy playing these characters and they make sense to you is because it is different from you. It is coming from a different perspective than you're coming from. And I've made you to be a person to revel in that, to enjoy that, to love having interactions, connections, engagement with people who are coming from different places than you. And that's why you love this Beckett play and that's why it makes sense. And so it was that experience with something different that God used to teach me something important about who I am. And that's what we're going to look at today. How God God loves diversity, things that are different, putting them together, and uses it to connect us to our true self in him. Does that sound interesting? That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, before I get into this, I just want to say, Themes of diversity, themes of multiculturalism, they are more and more very popular values in our culture today. They're things that I think a lot of us aspire to. You know, 15, 10 years ago, when I preached a sermon on multiculturalism or diverse things or difference, you know, I I was really nervous. I felt like, oh, people are going to get angry at me. These days, uh, it's it's a growing popular trendy value for our entire society. In less than 40 years, the United States of America is going to become a majority-minority country, meaning there'll be no ethnic group that's more than 50% of the population. That's my lifetime, hopefully, right? And for the most part, with some notable exceptions, people are embracing that, I think, at least the people in the circles that I tend to run in particularly in urban settings. They see this as a good thing. You can even see this reflected in advertising. So in the last couple years, um, for example, Chevy. Chevy ran an ad that they called Find New Roads. They started it with the Sochi Olympics, and their theme was the new us. And they would show vignettes of different families, different couples. And in one, among those vignettes were an interracial couple. Among those vignettes were a gay couple, Advertising. You probably wouldn't have seen that 15 years ago. Coke ran a campaign called America the Beautiful, which was a campaign created 
uh, in the campaign, they created a collage of diverse faces. General Mills reunited um, a mixed-race parent couple of Gracie at the Super Bowl. I don't know if you remember that. It was a very cute ad. My point is that multiculturalism, diversity, they're so such a growing value for those things in our society that they can actually be used to sell us cereal or cars or carbonated beverages. But the value for multiculturalism, which we tend to think of as this modern development, isn't a modern development. The value for diverse cultures is something that's an ancient, divine value. We're going to look at that today. And not only that, it's something that we value, but don't necessarily choose. We'll talk about that too. Let's talk about this ancient, ancient perspective. I want to read a passage for you. Some of you might know this, and I think you might find this interesting. This is taken from Genesis chapter 11. It's in your bulletin. Now, the whole world had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language or confuse the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, when you hear that story, and you think of themes of diversity and multiculturalism, what message do you take from it? Just think for a second. Think back over the story. Have these people, they're heading east, they decide to stop, build this big tower. God gets ticked off confuses their language. What's going on there? What's happening? Well, for years, probably most of my life, I read the story, and this is kind of what I took from it. Wow! Humanity, we had it so good. We were united. We were one language. Uh, We we were together. And then we had to go and build this big tower. Maybe we got a little full of ourselves. And so to punish us, God confused our language and broke us up before we did something really bad. And that's how I used to read it. Some of you probably heard this story. That might be what you took from it too. But years later, I don't think that's what this story is about at all. I had a friend a few years ago point out that just a few chapters earlier in Genesis, where the story of the creation of humanity is told, there's this verse. This is chapter 1, verse 28. This is just after God creates humanity. And it says this. He gives them a blessing in the form of a command. He says, it says, God blessed them and said to them, 
Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Or sometimes it's fill the earth and rule it, right? So now we hear that subdue and rule. It sounds a little like top down, um, you know, it could be even oppressive or take advantage of a use. That's not what it means. If you look into the Hebrew words, it's more about represent to all of creation who I am as a creator. It's a command, it's an injunction to go into the whole world and be creative, right? To create. So, flashback to the story we just read. The story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember what humanity's motivation was for building the tower? They were concerned that, quote, they would be scattered all over the face of the earth. They didn't want to go into the whole earth. They didn't want to fill the earth. They wanted to stay in one place. What if the confusion of humanity's language, as depicted in the story, wasn't a punishment or a curse, but what if it was God's blessing? God protecting something good for humanity that we wanted to ignore. Diversity. You see, our calling as a species was to spread out through the entire earth and develop and create. We wanted to ignore that. Now think about it. What happens when you travel, when you get distance between you and another person? What would happen to the human race as we found new terrains, new spices, where we had to build different types of cities because it was colder or hotter or more temperate or less? Think about what happens just, you know, what, what is the predominant language spoken in the United States? Anyone? English. English. Thank you, Chris. Anybody know what they speak in England? English, right. Not a true question. Not a true question. Very straightforward. English the saint, right? Maybe not the saint English, but English the language. Now, anyone here have any friends who are English or any, anyone English here who have American friends? Right. Jamie's a good example. So here's the thing. Uh, has Jamie ever told you to put something in the boot of his car? What was he talking about? The trunk. All right. Has Jamie ever said, uh, it wouldn't be Jamie, has an English friend of yours ever said, oh, I left my car in the car park? What was he or she talking about? Garage. The parking garage. Thank you very much. Um, here's another example. Have you ever heard an English person tell you that they were wearing khaki pants? No, you have not. <laughs> to an American or U.S. citizen, what, what are khaki pants? Tan trousers, yes? In England, khaki means poop. (laughs) Pants means underwear. You've never had an English person come up to you probably and say, check out my new khaki pants. It's probably not going to happen. My point is with just a little difference, even with the internet, even with television, even with telephones, language changes with distance. What do you think God was expecting to happen as humanity filled the earth? As humanity experienced new things, humanity would develop new languages. Humanity would develop new cultures, new foods, new stories. 
That was God's plan. Fill the earth and be creative. Develop. Use the resources there. Don't abuse, but develop them. His plan was for diversity. Why? Well, here's a little thought that I have. I just don't think that one culture in one place could accurately or completely display all of the glory of who God is. Does that seem possible? I mean, God is big. There are elements to him in every single culture in the world that if we all stayed together in one place, if we didn't experience that part of the world or this part of creation, I don't know if they would have been brought out. And our job was to communicate who God is to the whole world. That's the calling of humanity. That was the mission he gave to them. I just don't think that could happen if there was only one culture in one place. Or we took that same culture and tried to drop it everywhere in the world. I don't see it happening. Now, if, if you're not sold yet that this is an ancient idea, we started with the beginning of the Bible. Now let's fast forward and let's go to the end of the Bible, where through prophetic revelation, this guy named John writes this book called Revelation. And people often focus on trumpets and horns and all kinds of crazy stuff. But in this revelation of John, he's given a picture of what will happen when heaven comes to earth. And he describes it this way. This is the end of this present age and beginning of a new perfect age. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and, he, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So we're seeing this new order of things coming into being. Every tear wiped away. No more death. Health. Unity. Life. Shalom. However you term it. This is what it's happening. And he goes on to say, in this context, he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. So when we see this picture of the kingdom of God or heaven come to earth, we see it as a place where the glory of the nations is welcomed in. Now, here's a significant point. If it's the glory of the nations, you have to be able to tell that's the glory of the nations. Isaiah 60 is another Bible passage that actually sort of says what this will look like. And in that passage... It names who's, who's coming. And so let's see if I can find this. Um, each distinct nation brings their best. So Kadar brings flocks. Sheba brings gold and incense. Midian brings camel. Lebanon brings timber. Those are the things that were famous for those regions of the world. Another place in Revelation it describes what it looks like around the throne. And John describes it as every nation, tribe, people, and language. The only way you can tell that it's every nation, tribe, and language 
is if they still have different languages, if they have the identifiers of whatever tribe or nation or people they're coming from. Heaven is not going back to pre-Babel, where there's one culture, one language. Heaven is a picture of the cultures of the world renewed and bringing their best to God. The culture you come from is never going to die. It will be represented before God because there's an aspect of him in your culture that shows the full glory of who he is. And not one can be missing. So diversity, multiculturalism, difference was actually God's idea first. Our idea, according to the stories, was the opposite, monoculture. But God's idea was multi-diverse from beginning to end, incredibly consistently. So if diversity, if multiculturalism is something we were created for that helps us literally experience a taste of heaven come to earth, why then, when given a choice, like the folks of Babel, do we often choose environments and choose to create environments that are monocultural or not diverse at all? And research shows that this is true. Even among groups that have these stories, which I've read today, as the foundational stories of the perspectives. Lifeway Research recently pulled churchgoers and found that most are perfectly fine with the fact that Sunday morning remains one of the most ethnically segregated hours of the week. In fact, many people were more than fine with this type of segregation. They defended it. So, for example, the researchers reported that more than half, 53% of the churchgoers polled, disagree with the statement, my church needs to become more ethnically diverse. And about a third strongly disagree Oh, about a third strongly disagree with that statement. While 86% of American Protestant churches are predominantly composed of one racial group, generally that means 90% of one particular ethnicity. So here's the thing. I'm not bashing churches. I don't think churches, I think they're just representative of a part of human nature that we see at the Tower of Babel. Our culture in general values diversity more and more in theory and also in general tends to have to live in more diverse environments because of who we work with, the spaces that we share, and the trends in the population of our nation. But when we get to choose and create our own spaces, the Babel principle seems to kick in. Let's keep it familiar. Let's keep it the same one culture. Now, let me just say this right now, full disclaimer. Guys, I know that I'm like totally preaching to the choir probably right now. I mean, you all obviously are churchgoers. Even if this is your first time ever going to church, you are now a churchgoer because you have gone to a church. And as I look around, I see quite a bit of diversity. 
I see people from different backgrounds, ethnically, socioeconomically. And you all have chosen, I hope, to be here. And you're surrounded by different people. So I'm not trying to hit you over the head with something that you're not probably already completely bought into. But if you have been around a bit, you'll know this. You'll know that our church is very much a work in progress. And you know that we have a lot to learn about a lot of things, including being a multicultural and diverse church. And I say this because the Babel effect is real. There are things that make living in a diverse community more difficult. There are reasons that sometimes it can seem more attractive or easier to congregate with people that feel just like us, whatever our us is. And my hope is that, is that if we're upfront about those things, diverse environments and this environment, particularly in this church, can become a place where we have experiences that, like I had with Samuel Beckett, where I discovered who I was in a new way that changed my whole life, not because I became a different person even, because I realized who I really was. That can happen but not without difference. So let's talk just a little bit about why we don't like diverse environments and circle back to why that's good for us, okay? First, a lot of times the reason we don't like diverse environments is that they expose our limitations. Let me talk about that just a little bit. Homogeneous or same environments tend to reinforce what we already believe is true about life. The things that we value, we can surround ourselves with people who value exactly the same things. It's reinforcing, it builds us up. The things we take for granted, and that can be comforting and reassuring. Diverse and multicultural environments put people with different perspectives right in your face. People who might not agree with us, or you, or me. People who have different perspectives, voted for different people, post things on Facebook that make you want to tear your hair out. We don't usually like to be confronted with things, perspectives, lifestyles, we're in Philly, Met fans, whatever it might be. That may, I have some good Met fans, I just couldn't help myself. That may challenge assumptions that we're comfortable with. And when that happens, we lose a bit of control. We're actually reinforcing taking control by surrounding us by people who think just like us, do just like us, feel just like us. Uh, Christina Cleveland is um, a social scientist. She writes a lot about uh, multiculturalism, racial integration, and particularly from a Christian or faith-based perspective. And she wrote this about her own experience. She said, in racially diverse churches, I can't control the environment. Heck, I can't even predict it. People might worship in ways that make me uncomfortable. People might interpret scripture in ways I, I deem heretical. People might not be able to relate to my experiences as a black woman. People might arrive too late or too early. People might hold perspectives that shatter my worldview. People might not laugh at my jokes. Who would want to attend a church like that? Now she's moving somewhere. She's making a point. But it's less comfortable. It can be harder, and you can lose a sense of control. Second, uh, diverse environments expose inequality. Let me tell you something about myself. I don't like there to be problems. I really don't. A couple years ago, I took this personality assessment called the Enneagram. I don't know if any of you have taken that. It pegged me as a nine. Now, nine's not a bad thing at all. 
oftentimes a nine is referred to as a peacemaker. And one of the things about people who are nines is they tend to be really good at bringing people together. Uh, They tend to make people feel at ease. Um, They build bridges. And I think a lot of that is true about who I am. Now, an unchecked nine, uh, a nine that needs to do a little work, which certainly I fit in that category, um, also doesn't want there to be anything wrong. Everything's okay. You can live your life just for things to be all right so you can relax, right? Which means you can be conflict avoidant. Make sense? I don't like there to be problems. I want things to be fine, good. I want every, we're good, right? I want to just think that problems will take care of themselves. So in the worst case scenario, hopefully I don't live in this place, but sometimes I'll let things go just hoping that it works itself out. But what happens in diverse communities? Well, the problem is when there's difference, it's, there's difference. So you'll notice some people have certain advantages in life. Some people don't. There's inequality. And being meaningfully connected to people means you see that difference firsthand. It means that there are problems that demand action. And action, what does that require of people? Effort, sacrifice. If you meet people who have had advantages that you haven't had, it's not fair. It can make you angry. Why would you want to put yourself in that environment? There's a cost there, yeah? You meet people who haven't had your advantages in life. It can make you anxious. Suddenly just posting about inequality on Facebook or the Internet isn't enough because you know a person in a real situation. You might feel like you need to do something. Honestly, I'd rather not see inequality. But when I do, the call is to action, and action means sacrifice. Third, diverse environments expose our false selves. What am I talking about? Well, you may not remember because we had the Pope break and all of that, and we didn't meet last week, but we're actually in the middle of a, a bigger series that's on commitment, connections, and building relationships in a transient world. This series is about how can we build deep relationships. We're living in a time when people have lots and lots of connections, very broad, but usually an inch deep. You're connected to more people than anyone else has probably ever been in the history of the world through the internet, through social media, through things like that. That's great. But what we're finding is people have this sense of loss of deeper connection. So we're talking about how do we get that deeper connection? And we said last week, or actually it wasn't last week, it was three weeks ago, um, that there's a reason that it's so hard for us to connect to people. So you can look at this diagram here. If in the middle, this is your true self, right? That's the middle circle. That's who you are, right? That's who God made you to be. Then you're born and life happened. So you had disappointments. Maybe people treated you poorly. Maybe you made some decisions that you wish you hadn't. And around that circle built another circle called shame. Now, no one likes to feel ashamed. And usually we also don't like to deal with our shame. So what we do is we build a third circle, which is our Facebook profile. (laughs) Or, in other words, our false self. Now, what is your false self? Your false self is all the reasons that you are awesome. 
all the reasons you are a good person, you are worthwhile, all the reasons people should like you, right? And so you build a narrative, you build a story, you fill it with all sorts of things about why you're okay, why, why you're okay, basically. And that's what you show to the world. Now, what happens if you're in an environment where the story you've built about why you're a worthwhile person makes absolutely no sense to this other person who's coming from a different perspective? It starts to chip away at that. Wait a minute, they don't, but this is how come I'm okay, right? Wait, the way I see the world isn't the only way to see it? This prop for how I've become great, successful, awesome, may not even be true. Hmm. Or how about this one? Wait. All my success, when you see inequality, isn't solely due to my hard work alone? Wait, maybe... I can see now that I've had some advantages this other person hasn't had. Well, what if the narrative of how you feel good about yourself is all the success you've achieved in life and that you worked hard enough to get there, doggone it? Not saying you didn't work hard. But when you see another story of someone who's also smart, gifted, talented, but didn't have the same advantages, it just starts to sort of chip, chip, chip at that narrative. And when, when you chip into the false self, not yet... Okay. When you chip into the false self, there's cracks that happen and shame starts to break out. And that's incredibly uncomfortable. When all these things begin to pick away the story we've created to tell the world and ourselves how awesome we are. Our shame's exposed. That's not fun. Here's why we need it. This whole series is about how to have deep relationships, right? Now you can go to the next diagram. We said a few weeks ago, this is how you can have a deep relationship. It starts with vulnerability. People can see your weakness. People get to see your need. Remember what we said was one of the reasons that people don't like diversity? is because it exposes your limitations. Diversity will bring you into a place, if you let it, of vulnerability. We said the next step into building deep relationships is commitment. That's when people see your vulnerability and they double down. They stay with you in it. Now, how do you know if someone's with you in something? How do you know you're ever committed to anything? You sacrifice. You know, being faced with inequality, from what other end of the spectrum you're coming from, whatever the issue is, there's a cost, remember we said? You pay that cost and you're committed, all of a sudden you get vulnerability connected to commitment, with, which leads to what? An affirmation of your true self. Remember the discovery I made about who I was through contact with difference? What I'm trying to say is you find out where you really fit. Your true self. Your true self comes to life. It's even when you're filling the blanks. Your true self comes to life. What do I mean? 
One of the things Beck and I have been doing when we've been trying to watch less TV besides just turning it off, you've got to do something. So we've been sometimes making puzzles. Sounds exciting, right? It's kind of fun. Sit down and build a puzzle. Here's the thing. Puzzles don't work if all the pieces are exactly the same. Because then how do you click things together? How do things fit? Now, there's one way you can make the parts so that they would still click if they were exactly the same. But then you could put the piece anywhere. And it would fit in, and you wouldn't get the image that the puzzle is meant to represent or any borders, but that's another thing. <laughs> we need to figure out how we fit. And to fit into something, we have to fit into something that is different. And that's where depth of relationships that we're looking for comes from and through. It's through exposure to people who are different from us. In the smallest degree, you can marry someone from the same culture, same background, and they're, they're going to be different from you. And you'll learn through that, you'll grow through that, you'll discover who you are. How much more so, or at least in addition, can we experience that through other people from different cultures, from different backgrounds? God knew what he was doing when he scattered people all over the earth. If we'd stayed in one culture, not only would we have lost a full picture of who God is, but we would have lost a deeper way of relating a fitting that difference makes possible. I think it's absolutely perfect that this sermon just happened to line up with the name of our church being painted on the front of our building. Mosaic. What is a mosaic? It's imperfect pieces. Sometimes and often from different sources coming together, finding a way to fit that makes a beautiful image as a result. It's an analogy for the kingdom of God. It's an analogy for heaven coming and touching earth. Can you see that? That's what God had in mind. And that's why it's worth extra inconveniences and sacrifices. That's the payoff. Mosaic with all the same pictures, or materials, or colors. It's flat, blank. There's really no image. How do you make an image if every color is the same? You can't. You get a snowstorm or a black night or whatever it might be. One color doesn't give you anything. It gives you blank. So how, what do we do about this? I'm going to burn through this. I'm not going to explain this too much, but here are some things you can do if this is important to you, if you're buying the pitch that I'm giving you. Four ways to experience heaven touching earth. Here we go. First, be intentional. This kind of stuff just doesn't just happen around you. Remember that guy I told you was having all these conversations around the city with people, and I found out 11 people in a row told me that they had no meaningful connection to other people except maybe their family, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend. And one guy told me he just wanted it to sort of happen around him, and he was waiting for that. It doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional. You have to make choices. I'll leave you to figure out what that might be for you. Second, be a learner. 
I heard a definition of sensitivity, which I liked. It's the intentional acquisition of knowledge in order to relate empathetically to a person of a different background. The goal is not to be careful, but to learn. Learning versus walking on eggshells. Be a learner. Let me just give you, if you want to learn, I want to plug something. November 22nd, it's a Sunday, after the service, having a friend of mine come. His name is um, Minister Lewis Williams. He right, lives right around the corner. And he's going to lead us uh, in an opening uh, workshop on racial reconciliation. Right now, we're talking big ideas. I realize that. We're giving a few little practical things, but basically these are thematic ideas about multiculturalism. But there's been some real specific things that have happened in our culture in the last year, year and a half that brought a lot of issues to light. So he's going to come and begin a discussion with us about racial reconciliation. What do you do if you've been hurt? What do you do if you're from a population that traditionally uh, has been on the wrong side of race relation? How do you deal with that? How do you move forward? How do you build relationships? How is there forgiveness and healing and things like that? So Lewis Williams is going to come on the 22nd. Mark a calendar. If this is interesting to you, you want to get more into it besides just the bigger themes, stick around. I think it'll be worth it. Third, be sincere. Be direct, honest, vulnerable. Vulnerable. Depth in relationships does not happen without vulnerability. And fourth, be committed. That means hanging in there when you get offended. Someone does something stupid. Someone does something terrible. I don't know. Hang in there. Not running away, knowing that someone is in for the long haul creates commitment, which leads to deeper relationships and deeper understandings of who we all are. Let's pray. God, uh, it seems to us and seems to me that the picture, the value of multiculturalism, of diversity is your idea. But it also seems that um, we're not that good at it and we don't like to choose it a lot of the times. So we ask for a whole lot of grace. I remember in the Bible it says, bear with one another at the beginning of a long passage about how to do community. Lord, I pray that that would be one of the hallmarks of our community too. Not that we get stuck, but that we bear with one another in our ignorance, in our mistakes, and that you give us a lot of grace as we move forward. And I pray that we would be better for it. Not just as a community, yes, but also as individuals that we would experience new understandings of who we are and our true selves, who you've created us to be. And pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.